Last time, I called this organization the most important organization in politics, and I stand by that. I'm Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics. We're, of course, available wherever you get your podcasts and on the Blue Am channel on YouTube. I am just delighted to welcome back Amanda Littman, who founded Run for Something, which I, I'm standing by it. Why is it, why is it so important? I'll tell you, because I think the Democratic Party has our priorities upside down, not backwards, but upside down. We think about the top level, we think about big, bold, progressive initiatives or whatever Bernie called it, and we think about federal offices and federal legislation and all of that is great and it's super duper critical, but it's not the only thing. In fact, it's just the tip of the iceberg and underneath that, or in my view, on top of that, are all the offices that really drive our day-to-day -day lives and where the real power is. And Amanda, your organization that you founded is doing more than just about anyone else to make sure that Democrats fight for and win those kinds of positions. It's great to have you back. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Always thrilled. I. It's always a fun conversation because you're talking in my language. I love this stuff. I do want to know, here's where I want to go with this. We've made some progress, mm -hmm. at least at the state level, since you and I talked last. You were last on this show February 2022. So it's been about 18 months. And there have definitely, the Democrats, we've had a little midterm election since then. We've mm -hmm. had a bunch of special elections since then. Most of the special elections are at the state and local level. Democrats are on a massive win streak in those. We vastly overperformed. I wouldn't, it was supposed to be a red wave in the midterms. I called it a blue crush uh, because we so overperformed. And critically, we did so in the state legislative races, Minnesota, Michigan. We've been talking about those on this show recently. But you are even grassrootsier since then. Give me the bottom line up front. How do you think we've been doing in your focus area in the last 18 months? Then we'll dig into some of the details. But what's our report card like on trying to fight for and win these state and local races? I think we get a solid B plus. And here's why I'm not giving us an A. We are starting at such a disadvantage. I think it's always worth keeping in mind the context here. The Republicans have been engaging on these local races, on school boards, on library boards, on city councils, on state legislatures for decades. When One for Something started back in 2017 with a mission to recruit and support young diverse progressives run for local office, we were building not just like an apples to apples machine. We were going from apples to raisins, apples to trash. So we're trying so hard to build up. A Wait, we, we were the trash in that metaphor. Oh, that, that's totally. not good. Actually, raisins are worse than trash. I just like to say raisins are the devil's candy. They're awful. Mm -hmm. They should be banned. Uh, go on. It's a hot take. Um, that's what I'm here for. So we were trying really hard to just build from square one. So given where we've started, we've made incredible progress. Run for something now in the last six years has helped elect more than 850 people across all 50 states, while 49 states plus DC. We're still missing, I believe, South Dakota. So if you want to run for office and win in South Dakota, we would love to help you. But that's incredible. That's a huge accomplishment, especially in places and in races where Democrats have often not fielded candidates before or not fielded candidates in decades. And we still have a lot of work to do. And I do think in the last year in particular, folks have let their foot off the gas a little bit. So we got to make sure we're really dialing in as we go into the presidential election year and as we go into the November elections this year, that we're still putting all of our money and our time where it really makes a difference. And I should just back up for a second. And I was hoping that people would go back and listen in the feed <laughs> to the earlier episode where we did a lot of the preamble and the explanation of what it is you guys do. And I'm going to give my postcard summary and then I'll let you correct me. 
that's even better. In my mind, it's so critical because A, many of these races that make significant differences in our lives are uncontested. And you know how there's this aphorism, look, it's attributed to Woody Allen, he's been canceled, but that's where it comes from. 90% of life is showing up. Mm -hmm. You make sure that we actually show up. And sometimes just by dint of showing up, we win these races and then we get massive amounts of power that we're just ceding to right-wing yahoos who just happen to, to run for office. So that's great. Sometimes we show up and we have contested races and you guys provide support and messaging advice and fundraising support and we win those contests and again all those benefits sometimes it's like the movie the great escape where the there was the officers in english officers aviators were duty bound they swore an oath that if they were captured they would at least attempt to escape even if they didn't escape they had to tie up as many resources of the enemy as possible and so the worst thing the very worst thing that happens through your efforts is we tie up so many more resources that would otherwise go to other races and that in itself is beneficial how did i do you nailed it the only thing i would add where folks who are like oh how do they do all those things is we ask people to run for office we help them get on the ballot and we're with them every step of the way including through election day win or lose for whatever comes next for them we are full service soup to nuts recruiter supporter and community builder among people running for local office for the first time. The operative part of that last sentence was nuts because usually you're the soup and you're running against the nuts. Mm -hmm. You've seen that nowhere more than in school boards. When we last left our heroes in our last conversation, you were talking about school boards because th that was all the rage, right? Mm -hmm. That was what was tilting politics in Virginia at the time. And here we are. It's the same damn thing all over again. It seems to have school boards have seemed to recede from the news a little bit and maybe that's what you were talking about a moment ago about taking our feet off the gas a little bit what's going on with school boards now are these still like the frontline battleground in america's politics and how are we doing no i think it's interesting the conversation around school boards has changed a lot in the last year and a half i think they're still very much present but the ways in which they're present is different in 2022 it was a lot about mask mandates and schools opening and closing still debates around covid it was crt which is a thing that they weren't teaching in k-12 through schools but that didn't stop republicans from bringing it up now especially in the last year and a half it's book bans we have seen a record number at this point 2500 uh, challenges or more to books. I think two to 2023 have went up 33% over 21 to 2022, um, which was already a record setting year for book bans, all of which are coming before school boards and sometimes library boards. And this is not like a loud majority of people showing up and protesting and pushing back. There was a Washington Post report out in the last calendar year or the last school year, 11 people, 11 were responsible for 60% of all book challenges and bans in that year. Wow. And so this is real. This isn't a Fox mm -hmm. News invention. This oh. isn't like an MSNBC invention. Like book bans are happening. 
libraries are being emptied out. Libraries are being closed within schools because they have to go through and review every single book. You'll see photos from schools in Florida where there's tape wrapped around every shelf. In Houston, because the state uh, has taken over the Houston School District for a brief period, they've turned, I think, over two dozen libraries into detention centers for kids. We're seeing this in Missouri. They tried to defund the public library system. Wow. They understand that they cannot win by being more popular. So what they can do is change the ideas kids have access to and make it about the kids. And Wow. And I we're not talking about, like, what kinds of books are we talking about here? We're not talking about like magic, most evil, where you can learn about horcruxes. We're talking about the diary of Anne Frank. We're oh, talking gracious. about books about queer kids. We're talking books about people of color. We're talking the one that stands out to me the most, actually two, one, Itty Bitty Kitty Corn, which is a kid's book about a kitten who wants to be a unicorn that was banned in one Texas school district because the kitten is going through an identity crisis, which might possibly be considered a gender identity crisis. And there's a book about crayons in which the tan crayon or like the beige crayon is considered nude. And that is inappropriate for children. And um, this is all, if this sounds batshit crazy, it's because it is batshit crazy. No, I think it's actually worth though taking a step back to think about what is the political strategy here? We know that the most important thing you can do as a political campaign or as a, an advocacy effort is to determine what is the identity people are bringing with them into the voting booth. Is it New Yorker? Is it immigrant? Is it black woman? Is it queer person? Is it patriot or is it Republican or Trump, whatever it might be. That's the thing. What's top of mind when you show up to vote? The thing that can you can most easily bring to the front of people's sense of self is their identity as a parent. Since we last spoke, I had a baby. I became a mom. Mazel tov. I didn't know that. Yeah, she's very cute. I have a bite down. Yeah, babies are like that. It's real, real fucked up. She's very, very cute. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is pretty stunning. Evolutionarily, of course, we think our kids are cute. I promise you that your kid is the cutest. Now, as soon as you get off this show, I will promise the next new mom that her kid is the cutest. But I'm very confident that yours is is the current champion. It's a discussion in my household a lot. Is she actually cute or are we just crazy? Oh, no, I assure you she's outrageously cute. Thank you. I made her myself. You think about the identity that you take on as a parent or even as a non-parent, as a parent, there is nothing I wouldn't do for my kid. Nothing. So if someone is telling me that my kid is learning something that may hurt her, if I'm not as informed, if I'm not as in touch, if I'm not really paying attention, I might believe them. And when I show up to vote, I'm going to vote against the person who's trying to. That's what a lot of this is about. It's a political strategy. Now, I also want to take another step back to think about the operations that are coming here. As I said a little bit earlier, the Republican Party has been investing in school board races for decades. There's an organization called the Leadership Institute, which if you're familiar with the, the ecosystem of the right, you might have heard of before because they've been around since 1979. They're mostly funded by people like the Koch brothers and major Republican donors. Their annual budget is about $30 million. They do training and recruitment and support for conservative operatives, activists, candidates. In particular, in the last two years, they've done a ton around school boards. In fact, earlier this summer, they opened a 6,000 square foot education training center in Sarasota, Florida. Something is not just a flash in the pan, real estate investment. They are in this for the long haul. They are the backbone training organization for an organization you've definitely heard of, Moms for Liberty, which started in the last two or three years because a run for something candidate down in Florida beat out an incumbent school board member who was batshit crazy. That incumbent school board member went on to found Moms for Liberty. Moms for Liberty are the folks showing up at these meetings, 
protesting, expressing some deep racial and cultural anxieties about the way that their kids are being taught in schools. And for a lot of them, they don't actually have kids in the school district. They're just anxious about what kids might be taught in schools. They're the ones who are supporting candidates who are running for school board. And they're the ones that we're going up against with Run for Something's newest 50 state school board strategy, because they are not just in the battleground states, quote unquote, they are in New Hampshire, they are in Florida, they are in Connecticut, California, Illinois, here in New York, where I live. They are everywhere and they are trying to ultimately undermine public education at its core. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt. You may have heard my recent guest, Matt McNeil, an outstanding progressive radio host out of Minnesota. And you might be thinking, I wish there were a show like that where I live. Well, you can listen to the Matt McNeil Show streamed live every weekday from 3 to 5 p.m. on AM 950 KTNF, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Or you can get the podcast of the Matt McNeil Show wherever you get your podcasts. And that's, again, I feel like a broken record on this, but where do these decisions get made? They, they get made, the decisions about curriculum, the decisions about what we teach and what we say, they're made the local level. There are 10,500 school districts in this country, and they're all independent fiefdoms. They don't coordinate. They, it's hand-to-hand combat basically, in all of these school districts and all these school boards. And they have tremendous power to set agendas. And look, care about the Federal Department of Education. I believe in the role of the Federal Department of Education. I'm a Democrat. But where the rubber meets the road on who's making school textbook purchasing decisions, who's making curriculum decisions, who's banning books, you got it. And if the Moms for Liberty are the ones loudest at these meetings, it it has an impact. Look, I'm going through sort of the mirror image inverse of this in my town. I live in an outpost of North Wilkinson. I'm in Amherst, Massachusetts. And again, I'm a Democrat people, all right? I'm liberal by any definition of the word. But I have to say that the loud voices in my town happen to be on the very progressive side. And they have been so loud that of our five school board members, Three have resigned, plus the superintendent in the last two months. So these things work. They matter. If you have a loud and aggressive organized group, they can make a major impact. I'm not commenting here on the situation in my town. I don't want to be ridden out of town on a rail. Okay, like it's great. Go ahead. It's fine. Keep doing what you do. But that's why the counterweight that you're providing is so damn important. So tell me. You you mentioned the Florida situation. You beat one of these people. How is it going? How are the efforts to take them on kind of school board at a time going? Are are we winning this battle? We are. That's the thing is that book bans are actually not popular. They're not popular with Republicans, Democrats, independents, not into it. They, one of the things that we've been hearing a lot from the school board candidates we've been working with as they're knocking doors and making calls and talking to voters is that voters are pissed that These crazy people are distracting from the real issues. They want to talk about things like curriculum and teacher funding and facilities and the kinds of education that their kids are getting. They do not want to waste administrators' time with dealing with hundreds of challenges to books about kittens. One of my another favorite book that got banned down in Florida. Oh, um, do tell. There's a children's book called, I think, The Adventures of Marlon Bundo or something like that. Oh, I know this book. Mm -hmm. I know this book. This was as profiled on last week tonight by John Oliver, 
it's could you just remind people where Marlon Bundo comes from? It's just it's delicious. Marlon Bundo is former vice president and current presidential candidate Mike Pence's pet bunny. The book is an illustrated fictional tale about Marlon Bundo meeting another bunny and choosing to build a life together. It has been banned in Florida schools because the bunnies might be gay. Unclear. They're bu they're bunnies. I I do think it is suspicious that Marlon Bundo has that that fussy little bow tie. It's like, it's so fantastic. It's so great. I do agree with John Oliver that you cannot top the name. Mike Pence has done two awesome things. One, he stood up to Donald Trump and didn't allow American democracy to come to an end. It, more than a golf clap for that. That's good. But maybe just underneath that is coming up with unimpeachably, see what I did there, the best name for a rabbit ever. Our family rabbit is named Dusty. I'm sorry, your name sucks compared to second Marlon tier. Bundo. Yeah, second tier. Gives you a sense of how crazy these people are and that they are pushing for things like books about bunnies to be kept out of school. Now, I say all of this to note that one of the things I have found really frustrating over the last year is that so much of the conversation about book bans which is just like the most obvious place where these conversations are happening is happening about like, how do you buy more books? What can we do to support the publishers? Can we challenge them in court? It's, no, you know, the way you stop book bans from happening is elect people who are not going to indulge in this shit. Elect a school board member, support the school board member who's going to see that challenge and say, are you fucking kidding me? And they will not engage with it. So that's what Remember Something is trying to do right now is making sure that you said there's about 10,500 school districts in the country. It's actually about 80,000 elected school board positions, um, about 20 to 25,000 happening any given year. Half happen in November, half happen throughout the rest of the calendar, which means we need to be always on everywhere doing candidate recruitment and support for school boards. And that's what we're building. It is a little bit, what you have to do is a little bit like those halftime acts at the mm -hmm. NBA games where they have the plate spinners, right? And mm -hmm. as soon as one starts to slow down, you, you go speed it up because you constantly have this churn. Imagine trying to like, again, just to analogize to my own town, we have to fill three positions at mm -hmm. once. It's hard. It's hard to find three people who want to go through this crap, especially because you are subject to all of this loud protestation from nuts, from nutty people. It's not fun. Let's talk about another set of positions that make a major difference and where you are also subject to the whims of the nuts. You sent out a tweet and yes, I'm old school. I still am old enough to remember when we called them tweets and mm -hmm. not posts or X's or whatever the hell it is about the fact that Fannie Willis is a locally elected prosecutor. This is another unbelievably important position in America. How are we doing on that score? We're doing better. There's so much room here for improvement. We've worked with a number of elected prosecutors and county attorneys across the country who've taken action like Fannie Willis has. One of my favorite examples is a number of the elected prosecutors we've um, worked with in Michigan and Arizona and elsewhere, Texas also, who have refused to prosecute abortion if the state law was not changed to make it a crime. There's incredible latitude we have here to really control what's happening on the local level. Uh, it's another place where Democrats often don't engage because either it's an intra-party wobble uh, or it's just not as exciting and not as flashy. But as we've seen down in Georgia, it is incredibly important who is elected to these offices, the kind of energy they bring to them and what kind of perspectives they're going to show up with. And of course, part of the role that Fannie Willis is being forced to play is 
retroactively protecting American democracy. Mm -hmm. Since an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of Fanny, sorry, Fanny, you're doing an amazing job, not just on going after the chief idiot. Let's talk a little bit about election administrator positions. This is something that you were interviewed about by Ezra Klein in the New York Times that you and I spoke about a year and a half ago when you were on this show. You pointed out very incisively how many positions with tremendous power are uncontested or are lightly contested. We don't even know that these positions exist in many cases, and it takes just showing up. I think you actually said it. I asked you for your, in the last show, for your favorite of these stories where you had mm -hmm. managed to get someone in office. I think you, you noted someone in Texas in an election administrator position. This was obviously a major concern in the run-up to the midterms because there was a full court press from Steve Bannon and other MAGA world figures to try to flood the zone on election administration and get MAGA people into these positions and just overwhelm our election machinery didn't seem to work for them. So how did we do heading that initiative off in 2022 and how are we doing now? We, again, make an incredible progress. Remember, something's been running our clerk work program now for the last couple of years. I have loved seeing how this program has played out. One incredible example. So in Wisconsin, right after the 2022 elections ended, we started to do recruitment for the 2023 municipal races. The filing deadline was the first week of January. So we had about five weeks to really focus in, look at the targets, look where we had opportunities and get people to get on the ballot. We did a combination of about nearly 100,000 mix of text messages and phone calls to people in these targeted districts saying, hey, have you thought about running for office? There's an open position at X township. Filing deadline is this date. You want to talk? A bunch of people say yes. A lot of people said, no, not right now. I can't really do this. But a bunch of people say yes. We ended up getting in those five weeks about 100 people, 130 people, excuse me, 130 people to actually file and get on the ballot. That's five weeks to decide I'm going to change my life and run for office. Then we helped nearly half of them win in the April elections, including beating out 15 insurrectionists who were holding office, actually administering elections in the state of Wisconsin. 15 mm -hmm. were holding office and you got rid of them. Right Seems them. good. Progress. That's Wow. I'm sorry to tell you that you did just do something in journalism known as burying the lead. That's tremendous because if you multiply that kind of impact by other states, now, obviously, Wisconsin, like epicenter of where it's all at. But when you multiply that impact across those 49 states in the District of Columbia where you've been effective, getting rid of insurrectionists, that seems important for the backbone of democracy, no? I think so. <laughs> hey, yes, let me co-sign that. Put a real focus in your work on Gen Z types. Mm -hmm. I would like to put in a plug for Gen Xers. We're great. We still have something to give the world. I hear your point that maybe we're not the focus right now. Why are you so focused on Gen Z? You know, I like Gen X. I like Gen X. Oh, you're letting me down easy. This is such a bummer. Oh, gosh. That was like a, that was the verbal equivalent of a Dear John letter. It's, you're great. I'm just, there's not a spark. With not me, it's you. I think that we are at a moment in time where there is a desperate need for fresh perspectives and leadership and where young people are wildly underrepresented in government. We're seeing this right now in the United States Senate where there's like 30 senators over the age of, I believe, maybe over six, they're old. 
that is not to say that they are not doing a good job. Many of them are. But young people are not in the room where these decisions are being made. And we are seeing the impact of that on policy after policy. I think the best example here is housing. If you think about the experience of a 20 or 30 something entering the housing market right now, whether as a probably as a renter or maybe potentially homeowner versus that of a 40, 50 or 60 year old, it's just different. And if you don't understand, if you've never been scrolling through Street Easy and showing up at that open house at 8 a.m. the first day it's open to try and get an apartment or try and get a home, it, it doesn't feel real until you've experienced it. That's just something that older folks can't relate to. That's not to say they're wrong or bad. It's morally neutral. They just can't relate. So one of the things we're trying to do is make sure that more young people both feel like elected leadership is an option for them. And then if they say yes, we can help them through the way. Now, run for something only works with people under 40. That doesn't mean people over 40 shouldn't run. We're just maybe not the right group for them. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I'm on board. I'm on board. And the reason I'm hedging here is that I can't let go of my generational bias. Wait, first of all, speaking of generational bias, are you just skipping over the millennials or are they lost cause? Well, I'm more on millennials too. So we work with 20, 18 to 40. So that does include, I'm 33. We're firmly millennial. I've got the boy band posters somewhere <laughs> in the storage unit to prove it. Who's the, who's your number one draft pick when it comes well, to boy bands? Well, my first concert ever was 98 degrees because my mom thought they were very handsome, probably 98 degrees, but I could never pick between NSYNC and, and Back to Us. I was a Mandy Moore fan. Oh my God, as, as the kids say these, Mandy Moore is underappreciated. I agree with that. Yeah. All right, sorry, go on. So okay. millennials, you're not giving up on your own cohort, no. but you're focusing. Here's where I agree with you. I wrote a controversial, I got some uh, spicy feedback on this mm -hmm. one. I wrote an article for Alternet and Raw Story about two years ago, yeah. where I said, let's overthrow the gerontocracy. I'm not talking about the fact that our leaders are old. I'm fine with old people. I like old people. I'm increasingly becoming an old person. My issue is the sort of underappreciated fact that Americans over age 65 make up only 17% of our population. We spend about 40% of our federal budget on them. And I believe in social security. Okay. Before the older Americans were afraid, they lived in poverty disproportionately. We have through social security and Medicare, eliminated that fear. We have actually made golden years be golden years. Mm -hmm. But children under age 18 are the poorest group in America, statistically. One in six American children lives in poverty. Now, briefly, that wasn't the case anymore. Thank you, Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually lifted half of our nation's children out of poverty. But because of the Republicans in the House that and the elimination of the increased child tax credit, we are now about to sink back down. But that is shocking. Americans under age 35 have twice the poverty rate of Americans over age 65. That gap is widening. Mm -hmm. So my point here is that I am all for protecting seniors from poverty, from food insecurity, from anxiety, from all of the ills of being low resource in old age. But if we want, if younger Americans want to have their needs better reflected, investments in their generation made, then you got to show up and your organization is all about showing up. We're about to enter, uh, I think as this airs, we'll have hit the childcare cliff. I'm just going to assume Congress isn't going to take action to fix this. Um, uh, you assume right, you're right to be suspicious. 
millions of kids are going to be left without childcare, something that already millions more did not have because government funding that had increased during COVID for childcare centers is about to get yanked. This will directly harm, in particular, moms who will have to leave the workforce, which have already been happening over the last two years, um, to take care of their kids. This is the kind of thing where if we had more parents of young children in office who actually had to deal and look at how much daycare costs right now, maybe they would prioritize it. Maybe. I, it, it is one of the most important and economically mm -hmm. policies that we can work on. And look, we have to skate to where the puck is going on this. I'm, I'm boy, I'm co-signing your whole focus on uh, the young more than I intended to. Come on, come on, Gen X. <laughs> but you do have a compelling point. In 10 years, half of our federal budget is going to go to seniors, half. And this is mostly through programs that I lauded a moment ago, Social Security and Medicare faces a $71 trillion 30-year shortfall. Social Security faces a $31 trillion 30-year shortfall. That's over $100 trillion by my shorthand math here. That's a lot of money and it's not sustainable. It's not something we can follow through on. And so it's not just what we're, what Republicans ultimately would like us to do is just stiff these people. They want to do it quietly. They want to do it subtly because older people disproportionately vote for Republicans. So they don't want to say that out loud. But deep down, that's what they want to do. What I'm saying is, yeah, we do need to streamline our investment in the elderly. We have to do that. We just we can't afford what we've currently laid out to do. It's not enough to just do that. We have to actually redirect actively toward the young, because if we don't, that, that it's not just going to be a slice of our pie. It's going to be most of our pie. Most of our resources are going to go to retirees. That's not the smartest strategy from an economic standpoint, from a societal standpoint, from a democratic standpoint. And so again, I think you're on to something here that if people want to change that, they Got to get some skin in the game. I was going to be funding Social Security in 10, 15, 12, especially 20 some odd years from now. Your daughter? My daughter. The kids born right now. And you know what? Young people, 20s and 30 somethings right now are deciding to do less and less when we even have the option to do so. Have less kids. Why? Because it's outrageously expensive and we've not built a social safety net for families. It is uh, it, no notes. I, I can't add anything to, to what you just said. All right. Let's circle back to where we started. You gave us collectively a solid B plus as a party. We're, and we've broken it down, each of these individual aspects. It sounds encouraging. What do we need to do in the next year, let's say, as we look toward the, the 2024 elections? What do we need to do to get an A from you? I wanna have you on again before that, but what do we need to do? If I have you on in late November, 2024, what gets us an A? Okay, first, there are 2023 elections happening in just about a month. Incredibly important. Vote, Virginia. Vote. Early Virginia. voting happening right now. Right now. Virginia is the last state in the South. Virginia is where I was born and raised. The Commonwealth is the last place in the South where there is access to abortion. And if Virginia Democrats do not win, that is hold the state legislature, flip the House, hold the Senate, we will absolutely lose access to abortion care. Millions of people will be harmed. So one, vote in Virginia elections, keep giving money to these elections. And also there are tens of thousands of municipal elections happening this November, including school board races. Run for Something is working with uh, about a couple hundred, maybe 350 candidates this fall, all of whom are on the ballot. 
They're amazing. Go find one, vote for them. And we need to make sure that we are fielding candidates in as many places as possible going into 2024 because God bless Joe Biden. God save Joe Biden. God keep Joe Biden alive. Yes. Yes. One, the presidential race is only going to be really competitive and really in action in maybe a half dozen states. Unless you're living in one of the electoral battleground places, you're probably not really going to hear or see from the presidential campaign. Now, think about these maps here. The presidential battleground states, the Senate battleground states that includes places like Montana, West Virginia, you never know, maybe Indiana, where there's an absolutely insane Republican running for uh, Senate there does not overlap with the presidentials. Then there's the congressional battleground maps where we have an opportunity to retake the House that includes New York, California. Even we could win seats in places like Alabama and Georgia where they're going to have to redraw maps. North Carolina as well. Doesn't really overlap here. All of that is to say that by fielding more candidates locally, by supporting those candidates locally in as many places as possible, we can both win and we can help the entire ticket. Because maybe someone isn't super hyped about the top of the race, but they are so hyped about their school board candidate because they know that they can stop book bans. So when we come back in November 2024, when you and I chit chat again, hopefully sooner than this, but in a year or so from now, I hope that we will be able to say we have helped tens of thousands of people run for office and hopefully win across the country. We both come out of a campaign background, and I just want to ratify the point you were just making that from a field standpoint, what I'm talking about is the door knocking, the phone mm-hmm. calling, the direct voter outreach that actually makes a difference. The, the studies on this are weak. The mm-hmm. evidence for this is weak. My back of the napkin, rule of thumb, witless empiricism is that if you've got a close race, if you've got an advantage in field, it can add two or three points. And believe me, in close races, that super duper matters. The people who power your field are your local candidates. Those are the ones with the most skin in the game. They're the most invested, quite literally, in victory. They're the ones who have community organizations, who have networks, who are getting people and rousting them out to the poll. And you can have all of the field staffers you want But if you're in a place like Indiana, where there's not an active investment from the presidential level, from the state party in trying to contest these races, you are relying on volunteer efforts. You are relying for your field, for that door knocking, for those phone calls on those local candidates. I I feel like I want to cut. I I feel like I want to cut of what you're doing. I think I'm making a good case for you here. We don't make that much money. So your cut would not be that substantial. That's all right. I don't make that much money podcasting either. This is the key, though. I think you talk about like how people actually get excited to show up at the polls. It's the relationship with the candidate. Almost no one is going to have a personal relationship with Joe Biden. That's what the whole campaign infrastructure is about, is to try and create that intimacy without them ever meeting him. But if a school board candidate or city council candidate shows up at your door and says, hey, I want to talk to you about your property taxes or our kids' schools or the roads we drive on, and you have a conversation with them, you're going to remember. That cuts through a lot of the bullshit. So- It does. It's also one of the only ways psychologically, and I talk about witless empiricism, it's the only, one of the only ways psychologically to break through sort of the Trump blinders that people have if they're in the cult. I have had constructive, positive conversations with other dads out there on the sidelines of sporting Mm -hmm. events where we talk about local issues and we super duper agree and we find common ground. And I'm telling you, they're voting for Donald Trump. 
and we can disagree. We can even have a good time about the fact that we disagree so vehemently, and we can still connect on some of these local issues, and we have the same eye rolls together. And if I were running for office, which apparently there's a rumor going around in my town, hey, people in Amherst, I'm not running for anything. I'm not. Um, sorry, Amanda, you cannot recruit me. If I were running for something, this is how I could do it. This is how I could break through and get some of those crossover voters. So anyway, I once again want to circle back to where we started this. I continue to think that your organization is one of the most important, if not the most important in democratic politics. I love what you're doing. I definitely want to have you back. And I'm not suggesting that you put your child on social media, but if you would like to share some cute baby photos, I would, I'm all about that. My kids are older now and I miss that phase. Congratulations again. And Amanda Littman, thanks so much for being on Beyond Politics. Always a pleasure.